you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 21. Uh, I'll be reading from verses 1 through 22. John 21, starting in verse 1. Um, that was Scott Taylor. He's one of our elders that led our time in communion today. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with FAC, our, our governance, if you will, uh, is a board of elders. And their pictures actually can be seen out on these walls. I would encourage you to know who our elders are. Um, they they want to know you. Uh, they love you and care for you deeply and um, oftentimes pray for you regularly, uh, many of you by name uh, who submit prayer requests. And so uh, just as a side note, before we begin our time today, we would really encourage you to uh, just know who our elders are. Um, Once again, we'll be in John chapter 21. I'll read from verse 1, and I invite you to follow along with me as I read. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we can accomplish nothing of worthwhile value without the guidance of your hand. Even this morning, we have but breadcrumbs to offer you. Breadcrumbs that even you gave us so that no one can boast. But Lord, as we give you breadcrumbs, we trust that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can take these crumbs and transform them into a fruitful feast. And so my prayer this morning would be that the next few minutes of our time exploring your word would edify those who are searching out your scriptures. In your son Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. If uh, you are a fan like me of the Marvel superhero movies, um, you'll know that as part of the uh, watching experience of these films, that you always have to stick around after the credits. Uh, You will painstakingly actually sit through the credits because you know, having seen the movies, that there is always one more scene. There's something at the end. And oftentimes these scenes will revisit certain characters and show us what happened to them in light of the events that we just saw in the movie. And because there's a whole universe of these movies that are all connected, these end credit scenes oftentimes give us more information, uh, which sets us up for what's coming next. What, what is the next movie? The last three weeks in our time together in our services in, in Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and then Easter, we've been tracking through these concluding chapters in the book of John. And it's interesting because it seems like John concludes his book rather nicely at the end of chapter 20, which is what we looked at last week in Easter. It doesn't really seem like there's anything else that needs to be added, right? Because think about it. Jesus has risen, right? He's proved that he's the son of God. He gives his disciples in John 20, the Holy Spirit, and then John puts a nice little bow on the, uh, on the whole package by explaining why he wrote the book. Right? He gets to the end and he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing uh, in his name, you may have life in his name. And so it would come as no surprise to any of us if at that point, the screen fades to black and the credits roll because the story feels like it's done and and told. But that's not the end of the story. You see, John has one more uh, story to share that we read a moment ago. He has one more story to tell. Uh, Chapter 21 is like the end credit scene. It sets us up for what's coming next. It's one more scene that John feels the need to share, which will tee us up as a reader for what comes next. If you're not much of a moviegoer and you've never seen any of the Marvel movies, I won't hold that against you. If, you. if you're more into books, though, you could actually call these closing verses the epilogue. An epilogue is, in any book that you read, it's the final piece. It's the final section. Um, and in the same way, it's the epilogue that answers the question, what comes next 
for our characters? Where do they land? What happens to our characters in light of the events that have just occurred? Um, And we're introduced to the epilogue by saying that Jesus revealed himself once more. The resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples again. Um, That's verse 1. Jesus revealed himself again. However, uh, this resurrection, now having been the third time, um, actually serves a little bit of a different purpose than the first two uh, resurrection appearances. The previous two were, were there so that the unbeliever would believe that Jesus had indeed conquered death. John wanted to prove that Jesus was alive. This one, while it does help with that argument, it's, it's not as much concerned about proving a resurrected Christ as it is actually explaining the uh, resurrected Christ's presence or involvement with his disciples and specifically in their lives and in their work. In this epilogue, John's not providing yet another sign for the unbeliever. He's already talked about it twice. And if they don't believe at this point, a third one isn't going to do much. No, he's in, interested in instructing the believer on what is coming next. And this is where the disciples come in. The camera focuses in on the disciples back in Galilee, specifically the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. The the Sea of Galilee, really Galilee as a whole, was Jesus' home base for ministry in the prior three years. And uh, here we have the disciples. There's seven of them, and uh, this epilogue is about them, right? And and, and Jesus' involvement about them. And while there's seven disciples and most of them are named, the story is actually predominantly about one of them, specifically Peter. If you've read through the Gospels, you get a flavor for who Peter is. We get an idea of his personality. He's the bold one. He's the outspoken one of the group. He's also the impulsive one. And at times even floats into the territory of being brash. Peter is the one who left the boat in the middle of a storm so that he could go and meet Jesus walking on the water. Peter was the one who rebuked Jesus when Jesus talked about his own crucifixion. Peter was the one who drew his sword and cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants when they tried to arrest Jesus. And prior to that event in that story, when Jesus told his disciples, that they would all scatter and that he would be crucified. When he was arrested, they would all scatter. But Peter was the one who said, Jesus, they may all fall away. These other disciples, they may scatter, they may abandon you, but not me. I will never fall away. And then Jesus puts Peter in his place. In that moment, if you recall, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, not only will you fall away just like the rest of them, but you're actually going to fall the hardest. Peter, before the night is over, you're going to deny me. Within the next 12 hours, not only are you going to deny me, but you are going to deny me three times. You're going to make a habit out of denying me. And then Peter once again responds impulsively, Jesus, I will die with you 
before I deny you. But sure enough, before the night was over, Peter would disassociate himself from Jesus three times when he was asked. He's the impulsive one. He's the bold one. But not only is he the impulsive one and the bold one, he actually happens to be kind of the de facto leader of the disciples. And he's the influencer. He's the ringleader of the group. The others in the group kind of take their cues from Peter, which is why in verse 2 of our passage, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other six disciples say, yeah, we'll come with you. Right? Peter doesn't even necessarily invite them. He just says, hey, guys, this is what I'm going to go do. And they're like, yeah, we got nothing better to do with our time. We'll go follow you, Peter, and, and fish, right? Uh, they, they follow in his footsteps. And they decide to go uh, early in the morning, like before sunrise, really in the middle of the night, because the best time to fish on the Sea of Galilee, as they know, is the early morning, uh, before the sun even comes up. Yet they literally come up empty-handed. Their fishing expedition is fruitless. Out of the five identified disciples here in this scene, we know that at least three of them were professional fishermen. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they actually own their own fishing business with their father. So they know what they're talking about. But despite their expertise and despite their gifting and despite their knowledge and their wisdom in all things fishing, they come up empty. They come up absolutely empty. Imagine the frustration despite all of their efforts to be fruitless. And then at dawn, There's a man from the shore whom they don't recognize, and this man calls out to them. We know that it's Jesus, but given that it's uh, right before at sunrise and it's early morning and he's about a football field's length away, they don't realize it's him. And so Jesus calls out, children or little ones, hey, young fellas, you got any fish? You got any fish? How this is written, he, he's actually asking if they have something to eat. Hey, you got any fish to eat on that boat? What an odd question. It's especially odd when you consider what happens in light of what happens later in the story. Because we come to find down the page that Jesus already has fish roasting on a charcoal fire on shore. He already has something to eat. And so what is he doing here? He's actually highlighting the fact that they failed in their endeavor. He's drawing, he's almost like rubbing it in. He's drawing attention and wants to remind them that they don't have any fish, that their efforts were in vain. You got anything to eat? Nope. Hey, how about you try and cast the net on the right side of the boat? Cast it on the other side. You'll find some fish there. Now, if I'm in the shoes of the, same, uh, the disciples at this point, I'm thinking that's awfully bold of this stranger to assume that we didn't already try that. <laughs> like, who does this guy think he is? But I guess we'll try it anyway. They listen to Jesus' words. They cast the net on the other side. And sure enough, After a full night of fishing with no results, they obtain this miraculous haul of fish, 
so much so that they can't even lift it up out of the water into the boat. They've got to just kind of drag it along with them in the water as we go. And we'll read later that there was 153 large fish in all. Now, there's nothing necessarily significant about the number. Many people have tried to uh, find a symbolic meaning, but John is silent that it's symbolic. All John is trying to explain in this regard is, is that this was just a massive amount of fish. There's this contrast of you caught nothing, not, not just little, but nothing, zilch. And now you have this huge haul from just casting on the other side. And this event triggers the mind of the disciple whom Jesus loved. Once again, we believe that this is John who wrote this book. John looks at what happens, looks back to the man, and it triggers for him that there can only be one person who's responsible for such a miraculous catch. That man on the shore is Jesus. Guys, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. It has to be. And then Peter in all of his impulsive glory, hurls himself overboard so that he can get to the Lord quicker. This is a weird story, right? What what does this mean? Many writers say that this initial story in John 21 is actually a living parable, is what we would call it. A parable, if you're unfamiliar, it was a short story that Jesus would tell that would illustrate a spiritual truth. And so this is a parable, but it's also a living parable in that it's an actual account. It's an historical event, but it does point to a greater spiritual truth. It's actually somewhat connected to an earlier teaching of Jesus back in John 15, where he tells his disciples that they are going to go and they are going to bear fruit. But Jesus explains in that passage that if you are to go and bear fruit, you have to be connected to the vine or how we would understand it as the trunk, if you will, of the tree, right? And Jesus says, you are the branches. You are the guys that are going to go bear fruit. But guess what? I am the vine. You have to be connected to me. You're going to bear the fruit, but you're only going to do it if you are connected to me. So in this story, once again, with that in mind, you have these professional fishermen who know what they're doing. They have all the knowledge that a fisherman could ask for, but they come up empty-handed under their own efforts and strength. And then Jesus tells them to cast the net to the right side. The significance is not what side the net is on. It really doesn't make a difference. If the, if the disciples were truly at it all night and came up empty, it's almost certain that they would uh, tap into whatever expertise they have and try every trick of the book that they knew. They probably have tried at some point to cast the net on the other side. No, the significance of this is that their current position, their current posture, if you will, in their current position and posture, they are fruitless. And it isn't until Jesus comes and calls on them to change their position, change their posture, that they are productive. And the only way that they had such a great catch is by listening and responding to the instruction of Jesus. The spiritual truth that this living parable shares is that Jesus' followers will be most effective in the world 
when their focus is not on their own work or on their own effort or on their own expertise or knowledge or wisdom, but instead they will be most effective when they listen to Jesus' voice and obey him when he speaks. You see, this isn't a story of, hey, let's just try one more time. Let's just muster something up. Let's try one more time. This isn't a situation where the disciples are saying, we just need to try harder, or we just need to give it a little bit extra effort. We just need to be a little bit more persistent. No, Jesus isn't saying, oh, come on, guys, you can do it. I believe in you. As if Jesus is some kind of cheerleader on the sideline. No, that's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not the story at all. What's the story? Jesus says, you got any fish? No, of course you don't. I didn't expect you to have any fish. So why don't you just listen to me? And if you do, then you will catch your fish. Then you will bear fruit. Our ministry effectiveness is entirely dependent, not on our giftings or willpower or intellect, but on trusting the Lord and taking him at his word and walking forth in obedience. Which brings us to this character of Peter. Right? Peter, as we know, is a highly qualified and gifted individual. He, he is extremely talented. He is a, a naturally, a natural born leader. Yet he has this awful black mark on his resume. He has all the gifting and the knowledge, and the leadership qualities. He has these intangibles, but he has done something absolutely awful in denying Jesus. He abandoned his Lord. Keep in mind, Peter was the one who insisted that he would be by the Lord's side, even when the heat got turned up. Peter said, Jesus, you might not be able to depend on all these other guys, but you can depend on me. All of these other guys will fall away, but not me. And then he proceeded to go on and profusely deny any kind of relationship with Jesus after his arrest. And so if the great catch is about men and women bearing fruit, the church being effective in the fruit and bearing fruit, how can Peter... Now go on and bear fruit with such an awful failure in his past. It would have been so easy for Jesus to say, Peter, thank you for your service, but you've let me down. And so I don't really need you anymore. How does this work? Once the Peter jumps ship in our story, the camera on the scene focuses specifically on him and specifically on this really somewhat awkward and uncomfortable interaction with Jesus. And the awkward tension actually begins before Jesus even opens his mouth. It begins in verse nine, when Peter arrives on the beach only to find a charcoal fire in place cooking breakfast. Oftentimes for us, images and smells will conjure up memories of days gone by, and this would be no different from Peter. There's only one other place in all of Scripture that specifically references a fire as a charcoal fire. 
And it's back in John 18. And it's located in the courtyard of the high priest during Jesus's trial. And Peter is there warming himself by the charcoal fire because he's cold. And it's in John 18, as he's warming himself over the charcoal fire, that three people come up to Peter and ask him, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And three times as he stands by the charcoal fire, Peter says, no, I don't know the man. Another gospel account actually says that after the third denial, Jesus turned from afar as if he knew the precise moment, which he did, that Jesus denied him for the third time and Jesus looked at him right in the face. The last time Peter stood over a charcoal fire, he looked upon Jesus' face with shame and with regret. He had failed his Lord, even though he was so insistent that he wouldn't. And now he stands over a charcoal fire, looking upon Jesus' face, knowing that he is going to have to answer for his failure. And what will Jesus possibly say? We get the instance that Jesus has appeared to them as a group. And so this is the kind of the first time that Peter is with Jesus alone in this conversation. It appears that they've kind of gone off on the walk by themselves. And Peter knows what's coming. He knows that this is going to be brought up, that he, that he has to talk about this with Jesus. Could you imagine the anxiety and the nervousness of Peter right now? There's an uneasy tension as Jesus and Peter go on this little walk to have a conversation in private. And Jesus asks him a very fair question. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Having not been there in person, it's an ambiguous question to the reader. There's a a lot of um, different ideas of what are these, right? What is he referring to? There's several theories But the one that is most prominently accepted that I've found is that Jesus is talking perhaps about the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? It's an odd, interesting question because how could Peter know how much the other disciples loved Jesus? How do you quantify something like that? It's an interesting question. But it's also a fair question, because if you're familiar with Peter's life, you'll know that there was a time that he did think he loved Jesus more than these others. Right? He was the one that that said, they may fall away, but not me, Jesus. I love you more than them, that I'll stick by your side. It almost feels like Jesus is actually recalling that moment with Peter. And Peter knows how that moment ended. And so he probably sinks deeper into shame with the question. And we do, however, see a remarkable development and maturity in Peter based on his answer. Peter responds to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You notice something there? He didn't answer Jesus's question. Jesus asked, do you love me more than these, than these other disciples? And Peter left the other disciples out of it. Jesus, you know, you know that I love you. 
Jesus gives Peter the perfect opportunity to, uh, for Peter to bolster himself up once more, and Peter doesn't take the bait. And then Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. Or in other words, take care of my disciples. Minister to my people as I have ministered to them. And then he asks a second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Tend to my sheep. And then just to make sure everybody's on the same page, Jesus asks a third time, Peter, do you love me? At this point, it says that Peter is grieved, meaning he's sad. He is filled with sorrow. And every time that Jesus asks the question, he sinks deeper and deeper into sorrow. And it says that he's grieved specifically because Jesus had to ask a third time. Peter saying, Jesus, can we just be done talking about this? Would you just, yes, you know my heart. You know all things, actually, Jesus. You know that I love you. If this is the case that Jesus does indeed know all things, which he does, and he knows Peter's heart, why did Jesus have to ask Peter if he, if he loved him even once, let alone three times? You know, we get, the, we get the sense here that Jesus perhaps is making sure that Peter loves him before assigning him this, this task, as if, Peter, I got to know you've burned me once, and I'd love to give you this wonderful ministry opportunity, but, you, but I just have to know if you love me. That's actually not what's happening here, even though it might seem like that. Because Jesus does know Peter's heart. So what's happening here? Many times through the gospel, Jesus asks questions. And questions are powerful. And when Jesus asks questions, it's not for his own sake, because he knows all things. No, instead it's for the sake of the one answering the question. It's not as if Jesus is uncertain if Peter loves him or not. No, Jesus wants Peter to think through the ramifications of that question. He wants Peter to think. And the fact that he asks him three times is absolutely a symbolic connection to the fact that Peter denied him three times. Peter knew exactly what Jesus was doing in that moment when he asked him a third time which is why he was filled with sorrow. But for a third time, Jesus said, he doesn't say, ah, Peter, I don't know. Not sure about you. No, for a third time, Peter, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to prophesy on how Peter will die, which is a weird transition. It's somewhat of a downer here, right? It's an odd topic to bring up in light of the conversation. But Jesus shares this almost to affirm to Peter. Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I know that you love me, but do you know that I know that you love me? I do know, and here's why I know. He's almost affirming that he knows that Peter loves him. Peter, you're right. I do know that you love me. And there will be a day that your love for me will be on full display and God will be glorified. And such glorification, Peter, won't come from any of your ministry successes. It won't come from the mountaintop experience. No, Peter, you're actually going to glorify God in the valley, in the deepest, darkest valley. You will glorify me and my Father in your death. 
This is an odd concept throughout Scripture, but have you ever considered on a side note, have you ever considered that more often we will glorify God in the valleys than we will in the mountaintops? We will glorify God when life is hard and painful and when we experience things we do not want to experience. That is the place where God is most glorified. When we still can turn to God and say, despite the valley, Jesus, I love you. I love you. Jesus explains further, Peter, there is a time that you called the shots of your life. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you want to go, but there will be a day when you're older where you will stretch out your hands. This is an allusion to being arrested, right? You will stretch out your hands. Somebody will bind you and somebody else will dress you and they will take you to a place that you do not want to go. But it's through that that you will glorify me. And then Jesus tells Peter, Peter, follow me. Follow me. Boy, does that pack a punch. Because it's one thing to say, follow me, Peter, and I will make you a fisher of men. Follow me and you will have wonderful ministry successes. Follow me and feed my sheep. Minister to the people that I have ministered to you. Follow me through the ups. All of those tasks pale in comparison to Peter, follow me even to death. What a sobering moment. At this point, Peter turns and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them uh, on this little way. And he kind of ruins the moment. (laughs) Not the disciple whom Jesus loved, but Peter. Because Peter looks at him. And if you remember in scripture, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, they have kind of like this friendly rivalry. Right, The disciple whom Jesus loved, he was the one that beat Peter to the tomb in the foot race to see the empty tomb. We see several examples of this, of them always kind of comparing yourself. And Peter ruins the moment, this real serious moment with Jesus by looking behind him and saying, hey, Jesus, what about this guy? What's he going to do? Is, is he going to die for you like I am? Will he glorify you? This is a total facepalm moment for Peter. All right, Peter, you were doing so well, not comparing yourself. And here you are once again, uh, concerned about how you stack up to others. And Jesus, once again, puts him in his place. He rebukes Peter. He says, Peter, that's none of your business, right? I, I have a plan for him. And whatever my plan for him, whatever work I have for him to do, it doesn't affect what I've told you to do. Peter, you have one job. I've asked you to follow me and feed my sheep. Don't worry about the others around you because it doesn't matter. This guy could live until I come back. He might not, but it wouldn't make one iota of a difference of what I have asked you to do. So Peter, mind your own business. Just do what I've told you to do and you'll be just fine. Jesus' rebuke of Peter is also a rebuke to each of us. Once again, as a side note, as sinners, we are wired to compare ourselves. It's in our very nature to wonder, how do I stack up? We crave it. 
We desire to know where do I stand compared to everybody else. In our culture, Social media has actually done us very few favors in this regard because most of what we see on social media is how everyone else's life is so much more effective and so much better and they're so much more successful. Social media is a playground for the devil. And the only reason I can say that confidently is because I know what's happened in my own heart so many times. So in that regard, guard your heart. Know the truth of Jesus' words here. On this specific passage, John Piper, um, he's a pastor uh, up in Minnesota. He's written that Jesus' blunt words, none of your business follow me, are sweet to my ears. They are liberating from the depressing bondage of fatal comparing. Jesus will not only judge me according to my superiority or inferiority over anybody, Others are not the standard. Jesus has a work for me to do and a different one for you. It is not what he has given anyone else to do. And there is a great grace to do it. And that grace that Piper writes about is on full display here in this passage. Because ultimately this conversation that Jesus has with Peter is one of reinstatement. It's a, it's a painful moment as old memories are brought up and past failures are addressed, but it's also a glorious moment as Peter is restored. But Peter had failed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus, and then Jesus forgives him. But not only does he forgive him, he does more than that. He could have forgiven him and then just let him right where he was. Jesus not only forgives him, but then tasks him to take on the great task of shepherding his flock. And with that grace in mind, what we see here in this conversation really is not the quantity of love that Peter has for Jesus, but instead the quantity and quality of faithfulness that Jesus has for Peter. This isn't a story about Peter's commitment to Jesus because he already failed that once. No, this is a story of Jesus's commitment to Peter. Peter burned a bridge with Jesus and Jesus lovingly rebuilt what Peter destroyed. Peter was a failure, but with Jesus, failure is not the end. Jesus restores Peter and then commissions him for ministry. Peter's restoration makes his service to the church possible. And with that, that is what we see, the main point of this whole passage that we've looked at this this morning. These two stories, they're meant to be read together, the great catch and Peter's reinstatement. They're one event, and the story of the great catch shows us that by Jesus' guidance, the church will go on to have extremely effective ministry. The church will bear much fruit, and fruit that will last in the unbreaking net of the gospel. But this only happens in the context of a redeemed and restored relationship with God. Redemption, like in Peter's case, is the foundation for effectiveness. The work of the church is only effective because men and women to its service have been released from their bondage and restored from their failures and forgiven of all of their sins. 
all because they were worth it? No, but because of Jesus's commitment to his people. And so if you sit here today with past failures in mind and past hurt and past memories, run to the only one who can heal your regret. The only one who can truly mend a broken heart. The only one who can rewrite the memories. Embrace the one who laid down his life for you at the cross. Turn to Jesus. And when you do, Jesus will take the ashes of your broken life and forge them into a powerful weapon that he will in turn wield to lay siege on the enemy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this example of Peter, Lord. And we know that this isn't really a story about Peter as much as it is as a story about us, Father, and how you have restored us and redeemed us and now have launched us in to tell the world about your son Jesus' great name and his great work. And we praise you for that, Lord. And so I would ask that if there is anybody here, even in this very room, struggling uh, with past failures and past hurt and past regret, Father, would by the power of your spirit, would you take hold of their hearts and open up their eyes to what Jesus did for them on their behalf? They do not have to live in guilt because Jesus took on such guilt so that we could take on his innocence. And in your holy name I pray, amen.